Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. One of the most famous quotes in human history wasn't even uttered on our planet. That's one small step for man. One But while Neil Armstrong was the first person to set foot on the moon, he was by no means the first thing we sent into space. In fact, we've been sending stuff up there since 1957, when the former Soviet Union launched Sputnik. October the 4th, 1957, and the world's press announces the miracle of the age. The Russians have successfully launched the first satellite ever to circle the Earth, and Sputnik hurtles its way into space to make a date with history that heralds the dawn of a new era. And those 60 years have left their mark. In that time, about 5,000 objects have been launched into space, and... There are now, though, uh, about 19,000 objects larger than 10 centimetres orbiting the Earth. Like much of the rest of the tech world, the space tech industry wants to bring us the kind of future promised in science fiction. They want to mine asteroids, search for life on the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, and colonise Mars. So what's happening in space right now? What new ground are scientists trying to break and what new technologies are they deploying to do so? Simon is the world's first flying autonomous astronaut assistant that features artificial intelligence. And have we learned our lesson on the price of progress? Or are we at risk of repeating the mistakes we've made on Earth just outside its atmosphere? We don't do something because it's the right thing to do. If it's going to cost half as much or a third as much to deorbit a satellite as it costs you to put it up there and to, and to run it, it's not going to happen like that. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips with Everything. So space used to always be the domain of nation states. You know, it was a sort of cosmic willy-waving game between uh, the US and Russia and China and and some European countries. But because it's become kind of cheaper to get into space, particularly into low Earth orbit, there's been a bit of an explosion of startups trying to make money out of being in space. Olivia Solon is a senior technology reporter for The Guardian in San Francisco. 
I asked her to run me through some of the biggest things happening in the world of space tech. Well, I recently went down to visit a really interesting company called Made in Space, which is a space manufacturing company. And they're a bunch of guys. They started the company a few years ago. And what they're doing is trying to find things that they can build in microgravity. And so they've, they've put the first ever 3D printer onto the International Space Station. And they've been using that to print off various um, components that they need on the space station. The first thing they printed was a wrench that one of the astronauts had actually lost. But they're also looking at much bigger scale things. So they've developed this system, which I saw on the ground, and they have yet to put it into space, which is called Arcanaut, which is a combination of kind of a robot and a 3D printing technology. And the idea is it can be used to build out in microgravity the sort of big structures that are needed for satellites that normally have to be folded up in a very kind of careful origami-like fashion to travel into orbit. So it, it could allow much, much bigger um, space telescopes so we could see much more into the rest of the universe. It could allow much better um, satellite communication so that we can get much cheaper broadband beam down from, from orbit. Um, and it could allow things like Earth observation, you know, to track the deforestation or, or even track, um, you know, aeroplanes and ships in places where they can't be tracked by radar. And then there's NASA that's obviously recently sent a load of different pieces of tech onto the International Space Station. It sent a... One of these ISS experiments that particularly intrigued me was an artificial intelligence mobile companion. Hello, David. Hey, Jordan. Hi, how's it going over there? Going very well today, thanks. So I spoke to David Brady, the assistant program scientist for the ISS, to find out more. One of the things I'm particularly intrigued by that's been sent up to the International Space Station is this artificial intelligence mobile companion. Can you explain what that does and how it works? Simon is the world's first flying autonomous astronaut assistant that features artificial intelligence. Uh, although this is an initial pilot flight, so there won't be a whole lot of things that Simon's doing that's um, uh, very sophisticated, we're excited about the fact that Alex Gerst, the uh, European Space Agency astronaut, will be working with Simon on uh, various tasks. For example, uh, one of it is to uh, solve a Rubik's Cube, and Simon is going to help him figure out how to do that by using interactive technology. And specifically, uh, Simon will be able to talk, listen, uh, see through cameras and provide information that would allow him to uh, to learn. Uh, so Simon is trainable, and also uh, Simon will be there to document things. Uh, Alex is also going to be working with Simon on a medical procedure, or I should say, medical technology procedure, such that uh, uh, Simon will be there to provide good views of what's going on. Uh, so the task in this first flight for Simon are very simple but uh, it'll be the beginning of trying to adapt him for use uh, as a uh, AI uh, assistant for future flights. It said on the website, the NASA website, that this AI was there to mitigate crew stress. Is that right? And, and why is that necessary? Well, a lot of the tasks that, that uh, this type of technology uh, can do are the tasks that we have our astronauts do or we have our systems do. And the hope is that by offloading some of these tasks, whether it's photo documentation 
or having to look up procedures or uh, even to the point of trying to learn uh, during a troubleshooting procedure how there might be a better way of doing it. We're hoping that all of those items will um, help the astronauts reduce their stress on things that uh, we think we can potentially do with an AI device. Uh, in addition to that, Simon is going to have a human-like interface from a standpoint of a, a face that Alex had input into. So the idea is that, a, uh, that AI uh, combined with a device like this that's free-flying uh, will provide them with a, uh, a companion, if you will, in addition to having all of the capabilities that, uh, that I mentioned before. Can you describe what it looks like for us? It's about the size of a medicine ball. It's about 32 centimeters in diameter and weighs about five kilograms. The face is designed to provide some expressions. So it's a, a very simple face, very similar to if you have a, an Apple, a Mac, the little finder window, they've got an icon on there and that reminds me a lot of that. It's a very simple line drawn face. Do you think there's any chance that if this AI is successful, one day we'll replace human astronauts and just have the space station run entirely by AI? I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I think that what we're looking to do is to apply artificial intelligence where it makes sense. But we still know that when it comes to exploration and research, that there are certain things that humans do better than technology that machines do. Specifically, they are able to adapt to their observations and unexpected observations and come up with and synthesize new methods, uh, draw conclusions and, and kind of guide the research in a direction much more efficiently than machines can do nowadays. The goal is eventually to be able to support crews far away from Earth, not just in low Earth orbit. So David Brady over at NASA told us about some of these experiments that they're constantly thinking about sending up to space, um, but they normally have more of an experimental focus. But there are big plans at the moment for commercializing space, like for instance with these satellite constellations. Can you explain what's going on there and who the big players are? So there are a load of companies currently um, either putting constellations of satellites into space or planning to do so. And some of the companies include OneWeb, um, SES, SpaceX, and then there are other startups like Planet Labs, IceEye, and Iridium. And they are all planning to put clusters of miniature satellites, dozens if not thousands, um, to beam cheap, ubiquitous broadband back down to Earth, because still there's about half the people in the world don't have access to the internet. And building the ground infrastructure, i.e., you know, digging up the ground and putting in miles of optical fibre is really expensive. But in addition to just delivering broadband, these kind of little satellites are really useful for doing high resolution imaging of the Earth. And that's what people like Planet Labs and ISI are doing. And so what that allows you to do is track on a very granular basis how things on Earth are, are, are changing from day to day and that includes tracking kind of agriculture or um, damage um, during wars you can see you know what what is the collateral damage in syria for example um, from day to day and you can also track planes and and ships in areas not covered by radar which would have been extremely useful in the hunt for the malaysia airlines flight mh17 it's obviously cheaper to send these small satellites up than larger ones, but it still sounds incredibly expensive, especially if you're talking about thousands at a time. So how are the various players involved paying for this? 
the funding is increasingly coming from private kind of venture capital firms, but as well as government contracts, because the, the private uh, investment companies recognise that if they can indeed deliver internet to parts of the world that haven't had it before, it can be a very lucrative uh, return on their investment. And, th and similarly, they've also got cheaper access to space through other private space companies that are doing the launches. So Elon Musk's SpaceX, for example, has made it a lot cheaper to get access to, um, to orbit. So, more than 60 years after sending the first human-made object into space, the 83-kilogram aluminium sphere known as Sputnik, humans are planning to create these constellations made up of hundreds or even thousands of satellites. But what happens to all that stuff we send up into orbit? There's a lot of space around our planet, but in steadily filling it with all this technology, are we at risk of repeating the disasters we've created here on Earth? All the objects that have been entered into the catalogue, 40% of them are no longer in space. So space is cleaning itself, but only below about 500 kilometres. Above that, objects stay in orbit basically for hundreds of years. More on that after this short break. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, we caught up on some of the latest news from the space tech industry. Guardian tech journalist Olivia Solon told us about plans to set up satellite constellations for better broadband coverage around the globe. And NASA's David Brady explained why they recently sent an artificial intelligence up to the International Space Station. We've been successfully sending things into space for decades, but we're not so good at bringing them back down. 
now it's called Remove Debris because it's going to try to uh, develop and prove, demonstrate the technologies that are required to remove space debris. Scientists across Europe have developed a technology that will serve as a sort of fisher's net for defunct space junk that is floating around in Earth's orbit. Right now, a satellite aptly named Remove Debris is on board the International Space Station, waiting for scientists to deploy it at the end of June. The project is funded in part by the European Commission and is led by the Surrey Space Centre at the University of Surrey. Develop and prove Matthew Stuttard is the head of advanced space projects at Airbus and worked on the original proposal for Remove Debris. The technologies it's going to, uh, to demonstrate uh, will be uh, a harpoon to capture space debris, a net also to capture space debris, a vision-based navigation system to allow you to rendezvous with another spacecraft, something that's very difficult to do. And uh, also it will have a drag sail on it which will be deployed towards the end of the mission in order to slow it down and lower the orbit of the spacecraft which is one way of removing satellites from space without having to control them from the ground. It's a passive deorbiting device. What kinds of things can it catch? How big? Well, the uh, target spacecraft for uh, a harpoon could be anything from a few hundred kilograms up to a couple of tons even. And if you get a collision between two satellites, alive or dead, it creates a debris cloud which can have potentially a domino effect. You do not want to create more space debris. So removing the big ones is removing a source of space debris. That's why we would target a harpoon or other capture devices um, in, of conventional missions to the biggest satellites. Have these kinds of collisions between satellites happened before then? Why do we need something like this? So we're 60 years into the space era, a bit over, and in that time about 5,000 uh, objects have been launched into space. And there are now, though, uh, about 19,000 objects larger than 10 centimetres or orbiting the Earth. Quite a few of those are due to collisions that have occurred. The latest big collision was in 2009 when a defunct Russian weather satellite uh, called Cosmos impacted against a functioning American telecommunications satellite called the Iridium and this created a debris cloud of, of 2,000 uh, 300 objects. Oh gosh. <laughs> when this dead Russian satellite destroyed this live American satellite, who has responsibility for something like that? Every satellite in orbit and, and any debris created from a, a satellite in orbit belongs to the state that launched it or is the responsibility ultimately of the state that launched it because any commercial operator has to get permission from that state to launch. It's a license to launch and to operate in space. So the launching state is the ultimate responsibility. And this is enshrined in effectively the UN Treaty on the peaceful use of outer space and various conventions that were signed in the 1970s through the UN process. So why didn't Russia just collect their dead satellite then? Why don't governments and companies do this? Well, the simple answer is the cost of it. In order to capture a large satellite and bring it back down to a re-entry orbit where it can burn up in the Earth's atmosphere on re-entry, 
it takes uh, a lot of money because you have to launch another satellite with quite a lot of complex technology. You have to perform a very difficult operation which outside a Bond movie has never been done before to capture an uncooperative satellite with another one in space, you know, under teleoperation or semi-autonomously, never been done before. So this is the reason for removed debris to test some of that tech. So why had they done it? Simple answer, it just would cost far too much. Now, the game is changing a bit. Nobody wants to clean up the commons. The main perpetrators of objects in space are, let's let's be clear, are the US with 6,000 uh, objects, live or debris, and the former Soviet Union, mainly Russia and Ukraine, with another 6,000 objects. So of those 19,000 objects, 12,000 are US or uh, former Soviet Union and current Russia. Uh, so, you know, th those are the main perpetrators. But now there's a commercial imperative. There's a new thing you may have heard about, which is large um, satellite communications constellations in low Earth orbit. And the operators of those constellations will be wanting to clean up their orbital planes with their own satellites. So there is, we think, now a new approach to removing satellites from orbit. These will be smaller, 200, 500 kilogram type satellites, uh, and launching maybe with the constellation cleanup satellites that will remove the ones that cannot deorbit themselves. Since the 1990s, the rulings on creating space debris have got more stringent. There are guidelines that have come out of the UN Interagency Committee on Space Debris Control. And those guidelines, which were first in 2003, they were published. The launching states are stipulating more and more strongly, you don't get a license to launch unless you have a deorbit plan, a post-mission disposal plan, and you've proved that you've got the technology on board, not only that you can deorbit your satellite, but deorbit it safely so that it will demise, it will burn up in the atmosphere and none of it will reach the ground. Why does there need to be this commercial or financial incentive, though? Why is nobody worrying about the environmental impact? Like, you know, we've got this issue here on Earth where we're polluting the world around us. Why aren't we worried about space? Well, we're humans, aren't we? This is this is what we do. We don't do something because it's the right thing to do. If it's going to cost half as much or a third as much to deorbit a satellite as it costs you to put it up there and to, and to run it, it's not going to happen like that. I mean... There is one mission that the European Space Agency is looking at funding. So taxpayers would are the ones who would be paying for it. That one mission would be to deorbit a very large environmental monitoring satellite called Embisat, which died quite a few years ago. But so it's about the size of a double-decker bus. And there is a plan to deorbit that. And it's been studied by Airbus, by my colleagues in Bremen in Germany, uh, and how to capture this very large satellite and deorbit it. We know how to do it. It's a question of the money. If we had the right motivation, is it theoretically possible that at some point in the future we could clean up space so much that aside from all the things we want to be there, it would be basically empty? I think that is really difficult. I told you that there are 19,000 objects bigger than 10 centimetres in space. There's millions of much smaller objects. It was pristine in 19, uh, <laughs> 1957 with Sputnik 1. And the first piece of space debris to land back on the Earth was Sputnik 4. But nobody's ever been killed by space debris. But debris does re-enter 
if it's low enough or if it gets to the point where part of the Earth's atmosphere can start to interfere and drag it down. So of the all the objects that have been entered into the catalogue, 40% of them are no longer in space. So space is cleaning itself, but only below about 500 kilometres. Above that, objects stay in orbit basically for hundreds of years. So it seems we're learning from our past mistakes in space and are trying to avoid littering up Earth's orbit as much as we have before. But as far as the debris that's already there, it's the same story as here on the ground. Conscientiousness just isn't worth the money. Speaking of being conscientious, our interesting tech fact of the week involves Uber's attempts to improve its behaviour and thus its reputation. A patent application suggests the ride-sharing company may be developing technology that would attempt to discern when its customers are drunk. If Uber could use data like the motion of a user's phone to determine their drunkenness, it could then tailor its services, maybe directing drunk users to a pickup point that's better lit, or preventing them from pooling with other passengers. It's all theoretical at the moment, but people have already raised issues with user safety and data privacy, so we'll have to wait and see. I'd like to thank Olivia Solon, David Brady and Matthew Stottard for joining me this week. There will be links to all of the various missions and stories mentioned this week in the episode description on The Guardian website. Remember, if you have any questions or suggestions for topics for future shows, drop me a line at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.